I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. In 1996, Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka became the first veterinarian employed by Uganda National Parks to work with wild animals. She hadn't been in this post long when she realized that if she wanted to care for animals, she'd have to care for the nearby human population as well. In this episode of Constant Wonder, how human and wild animal populations in East Africa can thrive side by side. The health of people and animals is interrelated. Diseases can easily jump back and forth between people and animals. And the environment, the water sources that they share can also share diseases within the water sources. And it was important to improve the health of people, animals, and the environment together. Meet a veterinarian who has made it her job to improve the health of people. And if that weren't a lofty enough ambition... She intends that her work will ultimately help her country reduce its widespread poverty. Improving the lives of others has been a goal in her family for many generations. Her family has done heroic things. Her parents and grandfather were prominent politicians who gave everything to improve the lives of their fellow citizens. And she brings that same passion to her work with animals and her work with their human neighbors. All through her years of veterinary training, Gladys had longed to see a gorilla in the wild. She was on the cusp of finishing her degree when she was invited to do gorilla research in Uganda in the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. But she drew the wrong card on the very day she was to venture into the wild. And I think you'll have greater empathy now for her predicament than you might have had before the pandemic. On that day, her first meeting with a gorilla was derailed. She had caught a cold. Having been wanting to study these gorillas for so many years, I woke up with a sore throat and a cough and a cold, which developed further, and I couldn't go anywhere near the gorillas. It was so frustrating. And there weren't any clinics or hospitals nearby, so I basically had to get better without any medication. That was a big lesson in patience, but also it made me realize how we can very easily make them sick. And we should make sure that when we visit them, we're not sick. We don't have a cold or a cough or flu. Well, this is fascinating to me because in recent years, we've had so much attention paid to the diseases that we call zoonotic diseases. They transmit from animals to people. But I guess the reverse is possible, too. The reverse is very possible, too. People are more aware of diseases from animals to people, but people can also give animals diseases. And when they're so endangered and so closely related to us, like the gorillas, then it can be really fatal. These days, as a lingering consequence of the pandemic, anybody coming to the Bwindi National Park, where Gladys has been deeply invested over many years, has to wear a mask. But back to that first visit of hers, a trek, really, that this veterinary student made to see a gorilla in the wild. We hiked for about an hour and... We came across their night nests where they had slept the night before. Gorillas build a nest every night. And as long as they are four years old and above, they're old enough to build a nest. And in the morning, just as they're getting up, they normally defecate in the nest. 
And so because my research involved collecting fecal samples from their nests, we started off walking that way anyway to look for them. I happened to be with a group of tourists because those days you never used to have advanced teams where people first go and check on them and then the tourists come. It was a steep hike going up the hill. As we approached the gorillas, the ranger said, they're here. And I could smell something, a pungent smell, which was different. Somebody with BO or something like that, you know, body odor. They're like, yeah, that's when we're right next to the gorillas now. So everyone has to put aside their walking sticks, give their bags to the people who are helping them to carry them, the porters, and we have to get ready to go in. You're not allowed to take water or anything to eat or drink. And so then we started approaching them and within five minutes, five to 10 minutes, we had reached them. And there we are with Sokachipira on his own, which was really amazing. <laughs> so before you even come face to face with the gorilla, you've seen its feces. Yes, we've seen its feces. And we can tell a lot about the gorilla from its feces. Um, whether the gorilla is healthy or from the color of the feces, you can also tell the composition of the group. Normally, the silverback will have some silver hair and a larger kid diameter dung, fecal sample. So you can tell a lot about them before you've even seen them. Would you describe a nest for me? What does that look like? A nest is like interwoven branches. It's a round shape because they sit in a nest and they sleep in a nest. It's like a round basket made of twigs and leaves and shoots, and it's very comfortable. Oh, well, how would you know that it's comfortable? <laughs> I've sat in the nests when the gorillas are not there, of course, just to see what it's like. And when I'm tired, I'm like, I wish I could, they could build a nest and not defecate in it because it would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> would you be willing to build a nest every night, a new one every night? I don't think I would. They're very, very hardworking. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> So after years of hoping, Gladys Kalema finally got to see her first gorilla in the wild, a silverback or mountain gorilla named Kachupira, or Broken Hand. What was strange is that this particular gorilla was on his own. Normally they're in a group, but he was very relaxed. And I just couldn't believe that at five meters he wasn't nervous at all. And I looked into his eyes and I felt a very deep connection. It was really amazing. You're not the first one to talk about that deep connection. Others have said looking into a gorilla's <laughs> eyes is just an amazing thing. What do you see in a gorilla's eyes? First of all, their eyes are so similar to us. So I feel like I'm staring into species that is very connected to us. We share over 98% genetic material. I really feel like we're recognizing each other very quickly. I can see a huge resemblance when I stare in a gorilla's eyes. It's a very emotional experience. I've seen them hundreds of times because of my, I've been working with them for over 26 years, but I always learn something new whenever I visit the gorillas. And that always gives me that sense of awe. <laughs> and you said you were a mere five meters away. That It's one thing for the gorilla to be relaxed in those circumstances, but what about you? Oh, well, <laughs> I was a little bit nervous. But when I saw that he was relaxed and the truckers and rangers I was with were also relaxed, then I also relaxed. Mountain gorillas are surprisingly accommodating and that's what makes people want to visit them. But the first time you see it, it's always it was always a huge, nice shock to see that they don't move and they're very accommodating. And he actually had a broken hand, which I noticed was a bit weird, but 
he was very happily eating on a piece of bark and just staring at us. I want to take you back many years now in Gladys's life story, long before she had achieved her dream at about age 25 of seeing a gorilla in the wild. Her love of animals goes back to her formative years in a family where she was the sixth and last child born to her parents, and she was also five years younger than her next oldest sibling, which can be a lonely position in a family in and of itself. But her loneliness was compounded by a terrible family tragedy when she was just two years old, the political assassination of her father upon the rise of Idi Amin, a brutal dictator known as the Butcher of Uganda. My dad was killed by the president of the time who had just taken over. And he was murdered because he was in the previous government and he was a very prominent government minister. And through a coup, the new person, Idi Amin, took over and turned to our family. So our family was one of the first that suffered. But a number of other families also had their fathers killed later on. And so I kind of grew up in this whole cloud of terror and sadness about the loss of my father and my mom having to cope with looking after six children suddenly. But one thing that I think helped me to not feel sad all the time was the animals. We had lots of animals at home. We had cats and dogs. Normally there were stray animals that my elder brother would pick up and bring home. So they became my companions and my friends. And I grew up with them from, I guess all my life I was always seeing animals. But it was at the age of around eight years old, I got to meet a very interesting pet. This pet was owned by our next door neighbor, a neighbor across the road, and it was a velvet monkey. And this particular monkey was called Ponchos. This was a Cuban ambassador living across the road. And they acquired a velvet monkey. And Poncho, he loved coming to our home because at his home, there were no pets. There were no children. But at our home, there's a child and many, a number of dogs and cats. So he would come and pull the cats and dogs' tails. And he would go into the kitchen window and try and steal fruit, bananas and mangoes. He was very mischievous. But one time I sat down to play the piano and I kind of felt like I wasn't alone. It's a feeling you get when you work with animals. I kind of felt I wasn't alone. And then I looked over my shoulder and Poncho was staring at me. So I thought, let me see what he can do. Let me see if you try and imitate me. And I left the room and he did come in and imitate me. And I was so excited. He played a note on the piano. I was like, wow. His monkeys are so intelligent. I was already fascinated by the fact that his fingers looked very similar to mine, but I didn't expect him to play the piano. And that was my first insight into how intelligent primates are. And I think that's when my fascination with primates began. But I used to always get upset when we lost any dog or cat. Once any of them got sick, I wouldn't go to school. So my mom, she had to take me with her when she was taking them to the vet before I could go to school. And when they would die, I'd always be very upset. And even if people around me felt that animals don't have souls, I really felt that they did. When they die, that's not the end of them. They also have another life afterwards. 
I believe that there's a heaven out there for the animals, a dog heaven or a cat heaven. It may not be the same heaven that we'll see them again, but they have another heaven where they can continue. They also have an afterlife. They also have souls, the sentient beings. And I used to get my next door neighbors who lived across the fence, Flavia and Susie, to help me to bury them. And up to now, I still do believe that animals are sentient beings and we need to understand them more. They all have personalities. This time period of your early childhood with the animals, you also were in school. Is it true that you went to school with some of the children of Idi Amin? Yes, I went to school with some of the children of Idi Amin. They were in the primary school that I was with my sister and cousins. And yeah, it was a little bit uh, awkward, I would have to say. Could you elaborate on that? Were you fully aware that their father was responsible for your father's assassination? And I should also say your father's name, William Wilberforce Kalema. Yes, when Idi Amin's children joined the school, it was really scary being with children in the school, knowing that their father killed my father. But the children themselves were okay. I don't remember having any incident with them. But one time they prayed an April Fool's joke on my sister and her friend said, oh, your little sister is fighting with Amin's children. So she rushed down to the lower end of the school, the junior end, and she was very upset with me. She said, why are you fighting with Amin's children? I said, I'm not. I was shocked. Then her friends finally said, April Fool's, which is a very cruel joke to play. Of course, she cried and she was very, very scared and upset after what he had done to our father. So, yeah, it was a very scary time in Uganda. My dad was among the first prominent people to be killed, but other people also lost their parents in the same school. So it was a frightening time. But luckily, the headmaster was, he was a fantastic man and he used to try and provide support for the children. So anyone whose father had been killed, they would hold a special prayer for them just so that they feel that they weren't alone. And that was important. I actually can't remember that special prayer because I was very young when it happened, but my elder cousins remember it, and they reminded me about it, actually. Even before the murder of her father, political violence had been visited upon Gladys's family. Her mother, Rhoda, still going strong today at age 94, had also been the daughter of an assassinated public figure. I mentioned at the start that Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka wants her work as a veterinarian to lift her country out of poverty. This is no hyperbole, as we'll see later in the episode, and it's actually a mission that her family has been on for generations, sometimes even paying the ultimate price. Improving life for all in Uganda, that's what drives Dr. Gladys, as her colleagues affectionately call her. I want you to hear more about this family's sacrifices so that you can better sense what it is that impels her to want to improve the health of the people of Uganda as well as the health of the animals she loves. My mother's father was assassinated, my maternal grandfather, sadly. He was a prime minister of Uganda Kingdom, which is the largest kingdom in Uganda. Before Uganda gained independence, everybody was in kingdoms, and Buganda Kingdom was the largest kingdom. So when the British took over as they colonized Uganda, it was a protectorate, they ruled through those kingdoms. And my grandfather was the prime minister of Buganda for several years. And during that time, there was the idea of creating a university, the first university in East Africa. 
and there was prime land right in the center of Kampala for this university. My grandfather sold some of his land and encouraged other people to sell their land to create this university for the greater good of the country. And some of them objected to it and they paid someone to kill him. It happened as he was entering the cathedral where he used to pray every Sunday. They shot him at the entrance of the cathedral. So it was a very tragic day for the family. For my mom, suddenly overnight she had no dad and her and her many siblings had to find a way to look after themselves. She was 16 at the time. Yes, my mother was 16 at the time. She was still very young. She actually had very many siblings because my grandfather was polygamous. But her elder brother was able to find means of paying school fees for her and her sisters. And she was able to get to school, which was very important because my grandfather died because of education. And they wanted to make sure that all his children are able to go to school, even though he's not around anymore. There is a theme here so important to your family and your story because you have a grandfather who loses his life because he's an advocate for education and the making of this university. And then he also provides for the education of a daughter, your mother, Rhoda. And I understand that that was a rare opportunity. And then her commitment going forward to you and your education as a veterinarian, all of this commitment to education ties into a kind of family vision. Yes, the commitment to education really ties into our family vision. My family believes strongly in education. And actually my mother... In those days, girls were never really educated. They focused on the boys in the family. But my grandfather realized that he wanted all the girls and the boys to have an equal opportunity of education. He was very foresighted because this was like in the 1930s in Africa, in Uganda, and that was rare. But it, it really was great that he did that. He was way ahead of his times because now it's very heavily encouraged that all the girls and the boys go to school Education has had a large role to play in my family. We're very committed to education. And when you decided at a fairly early age that animals were important to you, how young were you when you started having dreams and hopes of becoming a veterinarian? I would say that at the age of 12, I decided I wanted to become a veterinarian. Having grown up with all these pets at home and going to the vets and seeing that they're able to heal them, I felt like I wanted to become a veterinarian. As she was closing out her high school years, Gladys began to zoom in closer and closer on that dream of becoming a vet, with more and more passion for working with wild animals. At the age of 18, I had the opportunity to rebuild the wildlife club at my high school, and I took the children to the national park, which was really a magical time. But the only sad thing about it was that there were no predators, there were no lions, no leopards. And they told me it's because of the heavy poaching in the area. The predators have been killed. So it meant that we could go on walking safaris without fear of being attacked by a lion or a leopard. We did enjoy the walking safaris. It's a beautiful savannah park. But it made me feel like maybe I should become a wildlife vet to restore Uganda to its former glory. Because it used to be called the Pearl of Africa because we had so much wildlife. And now a lot of this had been poached during the Idi Amin days. 
and the war that ousted him as well. And I just felt that I could play a significant role in bringing this wildlife back by becoming not only a veterinarian, but a wildlife veterinarian. Did you share this vision with your mother? I'll say that I shared this vision with my mother. And ever since then, she supported me. She's always supported me to do what I want. Even working with wildlife, although it was a strange thing, especially you would never see girls or women out there with the wildlife. There are no female rangers. But she just felt, my daughter wants to be a vet. She loves animals. Now she loves wildlife. I want to support her as much as possible. And actually, my mom gave me some money to develop stickers for the wildlife club. She loaned me money. Can you believe I've never paid her back after all these years? <laughs> Gladys left Uganda for the Royal Veterinary College, University of London, where she found that she had a distinctly different sort of aspiration from her fellow students there. When I got there, almost all the students were mainly interested in becoming small animal vets, cat and dog vets or livestock vets or horse vets. And they were not interested in wildlife. So they did find me a bit strange that I'd rather go and listen to talks by Dr. Jane Goodall than go to a small animal clinic. They found that a little bit strange. There comes a time when concern for healthy ecologies in the wilds kicks in for the general public. But was this before that? I would say it was before that. This was in the early 1990s. I was in vet school from 1990 to 1995. And people never used to talk so much about the importance of wildlife conservation and climate change. And so whenever, like in the holidays, when you're allowed to work with animals of your choice, and I'll tell them, okay, this holiday I worked with chimpanzees in the zoo back home, or I worked with chimpanzees in the wild or gorillas in the wild, I was always considered a little bit strange. <laughs> well, it is strange to be bringing chimpanzee dung back from Africa into London and getting that through customs. <laughs> it was actually. I was very nervous about it. I thought they were going to stop me. <laughs> and luckily they didn't. But actually what's interesting is when I said to them that this is chimpanzee fecal samples, would you like to see? The customs officer was like, no, no, no. I don't want to see that. I think he thought this would smell so terrible. So he just said no. <laughs> Which is quite <laughs> funny. <laughs> Gladys Kalema Zikusoka is the author of Walking with Gorillas, the journey of an African wildlife vet. She was the first wildlife vet in Uganda, known for her expansive, holistic view that animal health and human health are very much interdependent, as we're about to hear her explain. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Pioneers are people who pave the way, forge a new path, attempt something never done before. People never thought you should treat wildlife until I created this position, I'd say, for myself. And so I was the first veterinary officer for the Uganda National Parks, which eventually became the Uganda Wildlife Authority. One thing the new vet was eager to do was visit a recently discovered population of mountain gorillas in Buindi National Park, something not just anyone could do. First of all, getting there required some effort. And secondly, even a wildlife vet couldn't just mosey up to a gorilla. The park had a process of habituating gorillas to humans. The Windy National Park is the second stronghold of the mountain gorilla. When I finally got a chance to go there, it was truly amazing. We drove for a very long time, 10 hours eventually. It was a total driving time from Kampala to Windy. 
with a two-night stopover in Kabale. And when I got there, I felt like I'd reached the ends of the earth because we arrived in the evening and the mist was rising. And I could see why the late Dr. Dan Fossey's movie was called Gorillas in the Mist, because it's that kind of an environment. It's high altitude forest and the mist was rising. It was very beautiful. But I did feel like I'd come to the ends of the earth. I'd never been to somewhere so remote. And at that time, there were only two habituated groups for tourism. You could only have 12 tourists visiting the gorillas every day. And there were very few lodges, there were only about five lodges, and there were very few people. And I myself was put in a very remote mud hut on top of the hill, which freaked me out because I'd never stayed in a mud hut by myself. But after about two nights, I loved it. It was very nice. Tropical rainforest, which before it became a national park, people could come and cut trees just under the forest reserve. So it has very good hardwood. But once the head of the national parks realized that we have mountain gorillas, also in windy forest, there's chimpanzees and forest elephants and over four species of monkeys. It's a very important place with many important species. He lobbied to the president to create a national park and a national park was created. And that meant that the forest stopped being destroyed and it could provide enough water for people and stabilize the climate. So it was very important that Windy becomes a national park so that people are not allowed to cut trees and the gorillas and other species can be protected. Now, you gave such a beautiful description of the Buindi National Park, but the full name of that area is the Buindi Impenetrable Forest National Park. I, I don't know that you just stroll through it. You definitely don't just stroll through it. <laughs> it's just called impenetrable because it has very thick forest, very thick bush, and also it's very steep. And so when you get off the main trail and you start looking for the gorillas, the rangers and trackers have to use machetes to cut away the bush so that you're able to walk. It's that thick and it keeps regenerating all the time. So yes, that's why it's called an impenetrable forest. And actually the name Buindi means place of darkness. When this area was made a national park, people had to stop cutting hardwood there. And another consequence was that they could not hunt for meat there. That's an economic double whammy for many of the park's neighbors. So addressing this challenge of how to find other mainstays of survival for local people, that becomes an important part of Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka's work. But even before we get to that, we also need to go back to the problem of diseases jumping from gorillas to people and vice versa. You've already heard how a cold delayed Gladys's first meeting of a mountain gorilla, for example, the one with a broken hand. Zoonotic diseases can jump back and forth between animals and people. And the risk increases once animals get habituated and you can get really close to them. And also the biggest issue with a place like Buindi is that once the mountain gorillas were habituated, we found that they start to leave the park boundary because the park is already very surrounded by people. There's no buffer zone. It's a high human population growth, very high density of people, and they cut right up to the edge of the forest. So almost all of it has no buffer zone. So once the gorillas lose their fear of people, they started to go back to areas where they used to range before their forest habitat was cut. And they developed a liking for bananas and banana plants that people plant for food. And the bark of eucalyptus trees that people plant, who are encouraged to plant so they don't have to cut hardwood firewood in the forest. 
And all of this increases the chance of disease spread. And so the mountain gorillas picked up scabies skin disease when they went into people's gardens to eat their banana plants. And people put out scarecrows to scare away people, gorillas, and other wildlife. The scarecrows are really there to chase away the baboons. The baboons are worse offenders than the gorillas, actually. They want to scare away the birds, the baboons, the gorillas, and they'll put out scarecrows. And with the scarecrow, they don't, they don't necessarily put the most clean piece of clothing because they themselves are not very hygienic. There's a high incidence of scabies in communities that are low-income groups, and they don't wash their clothes often. And so we believe the gorillas touched that piece of clothing and the mite spread through the group. And this really shocked me when they told me the gorillas were losing hair and developing white scaly skin. And after treating them with ivermectin, which works really well for scabies, and they got better just with one dose of ivermectin, it made me realize that we needed to start improving the health of the people who the gorillas mix with, outside the park especially. And four years later, we started an organization, Conservation Through Public Health, a nonprofit, an NGO, which improves the health of the people and the gorillas together. You have poachers. And in order for the poachers not to poach, they have to have some other thing to live off of. And so you think economically, well, what can sustain them if they're not getting bushmeat? And then there's the whole issue of habituation. But tourism is part of the solution because that can bring in money as well and livelihoods for people. I just see this pulling in so many different directions of, yes, we want to be close to the wild gorilla population, but no, that's a problem. Yes, tourism is an opportunity, but also a great risk, <laughs> as you said. Because of the poaching, you don't want to be people to enter to poach and collect firewood. You have to find them viable livelihood options. And tourism presented the best opportunity, especially as visiting the mountain gorillas is something that a lot of people are willing to pay a lot of money for because it's such an incredibly amazing experience. It's a spiritual experience. And so that's has enabled the mountain gorillas to survive and thrive and people to coexist with them because they realize that they're helping to lift them out of poverty. But at the same time, tourism brings about a great risk of disease because in order to see gorillas, you have to get quite close. I need you to explain this term habituation in terms of the gorillas being habituated to human presence. Yes, habituation is a process of getting the gorillas used to you so that they don't run away. When you meet a wild gorilla group, within 100 meters, they'll disappear. They'll shrink back into the bushes because they're very scared of people. But when you're habituating them and the truckers who are local people from the area are very brave and very fit because every single day they have to go and visit the gorillas to get them habituated. And then they'll charge at 100 meters. Then when you keep going, they'll start charging at 95, 90. You keep reducing the distance until they get to the point when they stop charging at five meters and they know that they're ready for tourism to begin. And then they have to bring people who are Caucasian because most tourists are going to be Caucasian because then they'll start charging again at like 20 meters. And then they'll stop charging at five meters and then they're ready for tourism. But it can take as long as two years to do that. People have to be healthy before they see gorillas. You know, you shouldn't be showing any clinical signs when you're going to see the gorillas. If you have a cough or cold or flu, you're not allowed to visit the gorillas. And then during the COVID-19 pandemic, we also started to measure people's temperatures because you can pick up subclinical infection in that way. because 
as much as tourism presents an opportunity to protect the gorillas, it also presents a great threat that can drive them to extinction. So it's a very delicate balance. And when you say drive to extinction, what are the population numbers these days in terms of total mountain gorillas, wherever they are on Earth, in the wild? The total number is a minimum of 1,063 based on the gorilla census that was conducted in 2018, so about five years ago. We believe that they're more than that because they've been having babies. But when I first started working with them in 1994, there were only about 650. Actually, I participated in the very first gorilla census in 1997 when we counted 650 mountain gorillas. So they've almost doubled over the past 25 years, which is amazing. I want to chat with you the story about hippos and anthrax. What's that story? Yeah, unfortunately, we've had a couple of anthrax outbreaks in Queen Elizabeth National Park. And what happens is the hippos were always dying from Shambura Gorge, which has a river. And the hippos die. And then some people were eating those hippos because people like to eat hippos. You know, one hippo can feed a whole village. It's a huge animal. And people are picking up anthrax. And in the very first outbreak, we lost over 300 hippos and over 200 people who ate them got sick and six people died from eating infected hippo meat. So with the second time around, there was an anthrax outbreak. When we had the first one, I was pregnant with our first child and I was like, I don't want to go anywhere near anthrax because I can't afford to lose our first baby. But then when another outbreak occurred six years later, we really got into gear because now even our non-profit conservation through public health was better established. And we were able to lead the effort to stop people eating infected meat. We worked with community volunteers who we called community animal health workers and got them to educate people about the dangers of eating meat from unknown sources. And it really worked because people didn't eat hippo meat. So hardly anyone got sick and no one died. And the hippos were buried in a timely manner. We participated in a national disease task force, which had people from the veterinary sector, medical sector, public health sector, and environmentalists. And the Uganda Wildlife Authority headed the effort to bury the hippos that were dead before they could infect other animals, like the vultures could come in, open the carcass, and then spread the spores all over the park. So they had to quickly bury them before they could spread to any other animals or people. We buried them with lime. We participated in that effort. And then the Ministry of Agriculture vaccinated all the cows that range near the park with the anthrax vaccine so that they don't pick up anthrax from the hippos or any buffalo that die nearby. And then our team helped a lot with the social mobilization. And my husband helped to set up a disease communication platform where people could call a toll-free hotline and find out about anthrax and how they can avoid getting sick from it. So it was a whole big One Health effort that showed that if people work together from different sectors, you can reduce death in people and animals. One Health, just mentioned by Dr. Kalemaziku Soka, is an initiative which the World Health Organization participates in. It's to improve public health while simultaneously protecting wildlife and the environment. It's an integrated approach. It helps check the spread of diseases like anthrax and also factors in when trying to persuade people that national parks can be good 
generating tourism dollars and boosting local economies. People tend to make better decisions when they have options and good information. And coming together, like the community of volunteers did to quickly bury the diseased hippo, gave residents real ownership in solving their problems. I also need to make clear at this point that Conservation Through Public Health, the organization that Dr. Kalema Zikusoka founded back in 2003 and where she is CEO, came into existence even before the term One Health was ever conceived. It's something Gladys and her colleagues have been doing all along. Now, given everything you've heard from her directly, do you suppose there's much of a chance that being CEO of Conservation Through Public Health could ever really tie her to the office? Not a chance. I like being out and about. (laughs) She doesn't just like it. She looks for every opportunity to be hands-on, which at times comes with risk. In addition to working with gorillas, Dr. Kalema Zikusoka has assisted in transporting elephants, moving them from an overcrowded reserve to a roomier, healthier site at a national park. Transporting elephants is generally not the kind of thing they teach you in veterinary school. First, you have to tranquilize them with dart guns fired from helicopters. Then you have to have people on the ground to mind the fallen elephants, making sure that they don't wake up too quickly. After darting the elephant from a helicopter, and the elephant falls down, you have to make sure he's falling on his side because if he falls on his chest, he can squash his lungs. So you make sure that you push him onto his side. Then you have to tie him with ropes, fasten them to a conveyor belt, and then push the elephant into an upper ramp using winches into a truck, which is more like a shipping container with a roof which is raised. And once the elephant is in the truck, you have to reverse the anesthetic because they can't stay under the anesthetic for so many hours. And once you reverse the anesthetic, you have to jump out of the truck before he wakes up because he'll squeeze you to death. And once he's standing up and his trunk is hanging out of the shipping container, then you know that he's fine. He'll make it to the other side without any problem. Okay, very important question here. If you are preparing a dose to anesthetize an elephant, yes, and if it's going to be enough Not too much to harm the elephant, to risk heart or respiratory function. That's a lot of medicine. And you've got a sharp needle. And I would imagine that's a lethal risk for you. (laughs) It is. And actually, the drug that you use is very dangerous for human beings. If you get an accidental prick, you can die very quickly. Unless somebody gives you a reversal straight away. So when we're handling that drug, we tell everybody around us that in case anything happens to me, you have to inject me with this drug immediately. If you can't find my vein, you can even use the muscle. But it's highly concentrated, so it's not a very big dose. You put it in within a syringe and load the dart and just make sure that you do everything very carefully, wearing gloves and just have to really have your wits about you when you're doing such an operation. You've witnessed tragedy in these kinds of operations, tragedies to both animals and tragedies to humans. Lives have been lost. Yes, lives have been lost. Very sadly, we lost a certain veterinarian, a dear colleague of mine who begged me to join the elephant translocation when we moved some more elephants. And I agreed to do it because he was so motivated. He had come with me to Gwindi when I was checking on the gorillas and he was doing a master's in conservation biology and he was just very interested in wildlife he was a large animal veterinarian 
And so the day that he died, unfortunately, I wasn't there because I had to attend a very big wedding of a family friend of ours, the Queen of Buganda. And But sadly, that very day, once two elephants were darted from the helicopter, everybody rushed to them before the helicopter pilot or the animal capture expert told them, don't rush because we haven't located the second elephant. But there was some breakup in the radio communication, I believe. And they just rushed in to look for both elephants. So when they saw that the first one was fine, they left Dr. Jonathan Arusi on the first one and they went to look for the second elephant. But they didn't find the second elephant. And while they were looking for the second elephant, second elephant came walking by, saw Jonathan and the ranger there and got scared. He thought, you guys, what are you doing to my family member? The elephant attacked them and started squeezing them. The ranger was able to run away, get away in time. The elephant squeezed the vet, and by the time he got to the hospital, he was dead. It was a very, very sad day. I understand that political violence has also crept into what should be an animal refuge, a nature preserve. Uh, just for a little context here, after the genocide in Rwanda, Hutu rebels had been relocated to the neighboring Democratic Republic of the Congo. Then, and this was over two decades ago, some of these rebels crossed the border and murdered a park warden in Bwindi, kidnapped and then killed eight tourists. How do you how do you cope with such a shocking event? Yeah, there's been a lot of tragedy. At that time, we thought Bwindi was one of the most safe and peaceful places in the whole world until that happened. And that was horrible. I almost lost two colleagues of mine, and we did lose a warden who was trying to protect the tourists. It was a very, very tough time. We've had a lot of tragedy, but I'd say that what helps me to keep going is my faith in God. That has really helped me to keep going. I've seen how my mom has had to handle losing her husband and having to look after all of us. And she herself was arrested twice, three times, actually because she joined politics after my father died and narrowly got killed in all three times. So when I think about how she has so much faith in God to carry her through, that has helped me to strengthen my faith in God as well. And I would say that despair can really drive you down, but having faith in God, praying and asking for strength can really help. And sometimes you may not know why God did it, but you just have faith that he's in control. And there's a reason why he did it, even if you don't understand it there and then. And that has enabled us to keep going, to keep, you know, pushing on. And I feel like it's a calling from God to continue to make the world a better place in the role that he's given me, looking after the wildlife and making sure that people are coexisting with the wildlife. And so it's almost like finding your purpose in life and following it. And the tragedy, of course, is always a setback, but sometimes you just have to overcome it. And when you do, you're actually you're stronger to keep going. And Rhoda, your mother, you mentioned her participation, her activity in politics. She's a, a respected person for a long career in Uganda for serving the public. She, like you, have just gone forward in spite of all of these risks. Yes, my mom is a well-known female icon in Uganda because she encouraged so many children to join politics. She's one of the first women politicians in Uganda and members of parliament. And she encouraged so many people to join politics, including someone who became the Speaker of Parliament. She feels it's important to keep going, to make a difference, to have a, 
a safe world, a prosperous Uganda. Wanting to continue my father's dream has been a very big driving force in my life all through wanting to keep, because he died so prematurely. He had so much to offer as a government minister. He had done so much for the country. And I felt like I wanted to continue his dream through my passion for wildlife, restoring Uganda's wildlife back to its former glory and making sure the mountain gorillas are thriving and growing, trying to also help other species in other countries as well through our work in Uganda and trying to get other Africans in Africa to also care about their wildlife. That's something that I care deeply about. The work of the NGO that Kalema Zikusoka founded, Conservation Through Public Health, goes well beyond getting her fellow Africans to care about wildlife. The organization takes care of people as an essential part of the big picture. It's about the mutual flourishing, the mutual prosperity of human and non-human animals in the totality of their context, environmentally speaking. That's the kind of integration she has gone after for years, always with an eye on her country's success and well-being. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Dr. Gladys Kalemazikusoka is inspired in her care for her fellow Ugandans by the work her father did when he was alive. My father's dream was a prosperous Uganda, a Uganda where it's no longer like a developing country, but it's a developed country, a middle-income country. And he was the minister of commerce and industry. And he was also the minister of works and housing. And both times he did a lot of significant things for the country. Like he led a number of goodwill missions to the Far East shortly after Uganda gained independence, 1964. And they went to China, Russia, it used to be called USSR at the time. But from China, they got a national stadium, which is now called the Mandela National Stadium. And they also got the Kibimba Rice Scheme, an agricultural college, and Soroti Meat Packers. He used to lead delegations to different countries. And then afterwards, he used to encourage Ugandans to develop their own products. He was a very big advocate for developing the country. And I feel like also with my work with wildlife, I'm contributing to this because as the country's tourism grows because of having viable wildlife populations, we're slowly going to be lifted out from a low-income economy to a middle-income economy. So to kind of illustrate what you're about and your father's dream and bringing some of this together, you told a story not long ago at a conference. I saw this on YouTube. You told a story of during COVID, tourism, of course, had to go away. And when that happened, then many of the population around Bwindi reverted to poaching. And then you tell the story of a poacher who is caught and charged and facing jail. 11 years, I think, is the story. Mm -hmm. Then your vision means that you're saying it's not just about the crime. It's about the economic situation of the people. So you get involved not just in helping the gorillas, but in then something like planting and marketing coffee. This is quite a vision you have. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's like, you know, once there's no viable options, sometimes that drives people into the forest. They're poaching because they're hungry. And so when this hungry bushmeat poacher killed Rafiki, the lead silverback of Nkuringo Gorilla Group in the southern sector of Windy, 
Of course, I was shocked because I thought the community was benefiting a lot from tourism, but tourism had come to a halt during the COVID pandemic. So this poacher was caught and he was given 11 years in jail for killing the gorilla, the dike and the bush pig. But I thought to myself, there are many more people like him who are hungry and eventually they're going to go back into the forest. We have to do something to support them. And that's when we started developing fast growing seedlings and gave them to the 1,500 vulnerable households. We distribute cabbages, beans, maize, pumpkins, kale, spinach, groundnuts, amaranthus as well, both seeds and seedlings. Some of them require seedlings and others require seeds. And the whole idea is that they can grow within the space of one to four months. And that means that people can get to eat them as soon as possible. And then after one season, we encourage them to keep the seedlings for the next season so that, the, so that it just keeps perpetuating itself. Now, tell me just very briefly, the poacher who was sentenced to 11 years, his wife was very young, had very young children. She was her, in her early 20s, I believe. And you say one of these projects to come up with a viable livelihood for the local populations that even reached to her. She received some plants. Yes, she did. I really made sure that she was one of the beneficiaries. And when we got to meet her, she was only 22 years old and already had three children under the age of three. She was among the poorest in her village. And I felt so sad for her. But we made sure that she was a beneficiary of the ready to grow that grows within one to four months so that she can at least be able to feed her family while her husband is in jail. And I realized that people commit a crime, but sometimes there's a reason why they're doing it. And if you don't address the reason why they're doing it, they're going to keep doing it. And so in fact, the Ready to Grow program is something that we continued, we're continuing even beyond the pandemic because it made me realize that food security is a very big issue in this community. And it's also become part of our One Health approach to conservation. But even before that incident occurred, we had started to engage coffee farmers because you realize that not all, not everybody was benefiting from the tourism industry. Not everyone could be a ranger or a porter or sell crafts or accommodation or food to tourists. And some of them were missing out. Even as you're going to visit the gorillas, you stop on a coffee farm and tell people, this is a coffee tree. And a lot of tourists were very curious because they normally see coffee in a supermarket. And they're also excited about that. But these farmers weren't getting a steady market or a fair price. And they were still entering the forest to poach. So we set up Gorilla Conservation Coffee together with my husband and to build a global coffee brand to save gorillas through coffee. And some of these people we engaged, you'd call them reformed poachers. A lot of them are reformed poachers because now they're no longer poaching, but they can get a good price for good coffee. And if they want to eat meat, they don't have to enter the forest. They can just sell their coffee and buy meat. And this is one of the enterprises that we set up as part of the nonprofit. It's a social enterprise. And during COVID, we were also challenged because the main customers for the coffee were tourists coming to see gorillas and other animals. And suddenly they disappeared overnight. And we're like, what are we going to do about the coffee farmers? Luckily, we were able to get a buyer in the UK who came on board and the buyer in the US started buying coffee again in January 2021. And that has helped to keep these farmers out of the forest, poaching animals. 
before it became a catchphrase for the World Health Organization, the spirit of One Health already guided the work of the young veterinarian Gladys. And the spirit of this approach has been contagious. Regular folk catch the vision and get engaged, often pitching in on the spur of the moment. Early in her career, utterly exhausted, she was herself rescued by a local villager while working with her team to translocate an aggressive gorilla. They were doing this on foot. That is to say, they were walking him miles to his new home. Not that anybody had intended to do it that way. The original plan was to anesthetize the gorilla, move him on a stretcher, on a comfy mattress in the back of a pickup, but things didn't quite go that way. It was quite a day for me because having been in that environment, I hadn't seen any women going out to the wildlife. But the warden called me out and said, come and translocate the gorilla. This gorilla has been scratching people. And now having heard that a vet had been hired in the organization, he was like, maybe she can help us to move this gorilla somewhere else where he can stop hurting people because he was tired of paying out money for this gorilla that had hurt people. And so we went there with two veterinarians from the Mountain Gorilla Vet Project that was operating in Rwanda. And we went out to see what we could do. And we saw the gorilla the day before. He was settled in community land. He charged us a bit, but we thought, let's not scare him because tomorrow it will be difficult to find him. The following morning, we got up and Dr. Jonathan Seaman gave him a dose. And it wasn't enough because he was a semi-wild gorilla. When gorillas are wild, they need a higher dose of anesthetic than when they're tame. And we thought he was, he gave, we gave him the dose of a tame gorilla. And he just kept, he went down very slightly, but then started running, running, running. We chased him, chased him, chased him. After about four hours, he was in the forest where we wanted him to be. I was like, oh my goodness. But I was exhausted at that point because we're now at the bottom of a very steep hill and I had no energy to walk back up to the road. And Jonathan went up, spoke to somebody. Suddenly, I saw a very wonderful lady coming down. She just grabbed hold of my hand and started pulling me up the hill. We didn't really say much to each other, but I felt like she was the angel I needed to get up to the hill. And that was pretty amazing. Her name was called Peace. And I was so glad to reconnect with her 24 years later, actually, when I was in that same community talking about why the community should support the gorillas, even if there's no tourists at the moment, because tourism has helped to lift them out of poverty. There are a number of lodges now. And I told them that experience when there was no lodges and we had to chase after the problem gorilla. And then someone said, I remember you, I was there at the time. I remember the mattress he asked us to put on the stretcher. And I said, and do you know where that lady is who pulled me up the hill? He's like, yeah. So he, we went to her home. She was so excited to see me. So it was a really special time. And we're in constant touch with each other now. And of course, her name would be Peace. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Gorilla tourism now makes up 8% of Uganda's GDP. And locals have come around to protecting their primate neighbors. You can read more about Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka's challenges and successes in her new book, Walking with Gorillas, The Journey of an African Wildlife Vet. She's also the founder and CEO of Conservation Through Public Health. I'm Marcus Smith. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Audrey Hughes, sound designed by Mitchell Towsley and Dallin Jepson. 
We hope you love what you're hearing on the show. And if you do, please leave us a helpful review or a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode. It helps so much to get the word out. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. Some of the music you've heard in this episode of Constant Wonder comes from the Singing Wells Project. The Singing Wells Project is the world's largest collection of East African music. And the project's goal is to record and archive and then share this music to celebrate the cultural heritage of this region of the world. It's all found easily online by searching The Singing Wells Project. (laughs) 